Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. So I'm going to be preaching on something I haven't really preached on a lot. And I'm going to be dealing with a relationship with love and shame. Love and shame. And it's not going to be long today. I, my, my thoughts are cursory. And so I'm not going to be able to uh, plunge into the depths of this subject matter. But I'm going to do my best in 31 minutes, okay? Um, Bengal fans, say amen. Okay, I want to make sure you're there. So there's two, two common things my, my kids say. And they say this often. If you're a parent, I'm sure you've experienced this before. Uh, the first statement that they say all the time, ad nauseum, is that's not fair, right? That's not fair because they're fighters. And so they fight all the time and they have this, this sense of justice. The problem with my kids' sense of justice is they do not acknowledge a justice higher than their own sense of justice for which they fight for. So instead of being agents of justice, they become petty little tyrants that try to lord, lord over each other, right? So my, I love my kids, but uh, they don't fully understand what justice is. However, I'm going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. They do have a built-in sense or need for justice, so the question that is not fair is the question of justice. The other thing, the other statement that my kids often say, I have four toddlers. Guys, can you believe that? I'm a 45-year-old man and no 45-year-old man should have four toddlers. It is ungodly. I am telling you the truth. I am not lying. Guys, please pray for me, okay? I, I just almost threw up in my mouth. I have four toddlers under three. Did I tell you I'm 45 years old? I'm old. I'm old. My, my son goes, Dad, you look like this actor, and he's 72. <laughs> I'm like, what? Get behind me, Satan, right? Uh, but what they often say is, hold me, Daddy. Hold me, Daddy. So two things. That they say, that's not fair. My three-year-old's already saying that. But the other thing they say, the other statement that they say is, hold me daddy. So the first one, that's not fair, as I mentioned before, is all about justice. The second statement, which I'll be talking about today, hold me daddy, is about love. Both, please hear me. Both statements, that's not fair, hold me daddy, are the inside and the outside of the same thing. Justice, as I'll define in a couple of weeks, is love worked out in public while love, everyone say love. Love always seeks the good of others. Love always is motivated by doing good for the other, okay? That's what love is basically. So I'm, I'm making the overstatement of the year as we approach Valentine's Day, which is tomorrow. Men, you better be prepared, okay? Do not forget, is it tomorrow? Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. And I know this is just the overstatement of the year, and we hear this all the time. You know, some of you are going to want to tune me out. Don't you dare tune me out, okay? But you and I were made to, number one, be loved and to love in response. 
and then to give love in return. I'm going to say that again. We were made for, I'll just sum everything up. We were made for love. In the same sense, a failure to respond to love or to receive love and then to give love away is not just an unfortunate state where someone finds themselves in. It's a failure on a level of human flourishing. In other words, non-love, please hear me, is to be non-human. Non-love is to be non-human. And I'm not trying to get philosophical here. And what I'm not suggesting, because there are some of you here today that have experienced the tragic circumstances of growing up in an unloving home. And I've talked to many of you and you've been healed from that traumatic experience of being unloved by a mom or a dad or an authority figure. And some of you are maybe in the process of being healed from that tragic experience. And maybe some of you have never been healed. And we're going to pray for you today that God will bring his healing power into your life. Church, can I get an amen? But I'm first not talking about that. When I'm talking about love, non-love is to be non-human. I'm making a very theological statement about our relationship with God. Are you hearing me? You see, uh, Karl Barth, he was a, a, a famous theologian in the early part, mid early part of the 20th century into the mid part of the 20th century. Uh, it, this one story, he got done with this famous lecture. I mean, the guy's brilliant, probably had 170 IQ. I mean, the way he put thoughts together was, it just was uh, crazy. Everyone say crazy. Uh, so at, at post hoc, so after um, a, a lecture, a journalist came up to him and said, hey, Mr. Bart, can you distill just everything you said and then all the books and all the tomes that you've written, what is the one irreducible thing that you have learned? This brilliant man who loves Jesus said this, Jesus, without batting an eye, he says, Jesus loves me. That's it. That's it. So we're like, ah, oh, this is Sunday school class stuff, right, Chris? We've moved on beyond all that kind of stuff. No, you never move on beyond Amen. the love of God. That's our problem. And I'm going to talk about our problem. And many of us have kind of colluded with this problem. And God's going to set us free from the problem that in a couple of minutes that I'm going to be talking about. Uh, another scholar that I love, he even said this. He goes, he never, and which I, this is my hope for all of you. He goes, I never knew a day where I had not sensed the love of God in my life. In fact, he even talked about there was a period in his life of long depression where it was the love of God and his awareness and knowledge of the love of God that carried him through the deep darkness of depression. Paul even says, the great Saint Paul in Galatians 2.20, which is my life scripture, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives Within me, I now live by his faithfulness or faith, whether you take the objective or subjective tense, whatever. But I live by the faithfulness of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is love. Love, in other words, is not static. It's not inert. It's not abstract. It's not just some idea out there floating around in deep space. Come on, somebody. Love, we sung about it in our song. And I just saw myself in my sweats, okay? Okay, this is Super Bowl Sunday, all right? Don't judge me. You were supposed to come in your sweats and your jerseys. None of you got the memo, okay? You didn't get the memo. Remember, next Super Bowl, go cash, all right? 
But love, we sung about it, love comes after us. I have to read this story. I had to read this story. It broke my heart. And it, it illustrates how God's love comes after us. It's about a Wiccan priest. He's a priest over the witch gods. This is his nomenclature. And uh, he writes um, uh, about his coming to Jesus. And this is what he said. All initiated Wiccans are priests or priestesses of these gods. They are no laity. My coven used to do rituals in the woods. He's talking about his past life under the full moon. It was fun and it made things happen. I discovered that magic is real. It works. Who it works for is another question. Then he goes, at last I was home where I belonged, in the woods, worshiping a nature goddess under the stars. I even got to wear a cloak. Everything seemed to have fallen into place until I started having dreams. I had known, I suppose, that the abyss was still there inside of me. He talks about the abyss a lot, that he was trying to assuage. That what I was doing in the woods, though affecting, was at some level still play acting. Then one night I dreamed of Jesus. The dream was vivid, and when I woke up, I wrote down what I had heard him say, and I drew what he had looked like. It's fascinating. I'd love to see that picture. The crux of the matter was that he was to be, that he was to be the next step on my spiritual path. I didn't believe that or want it to be true, but the image and the message reminded me of something strange that had happened a few months before. My wife and I were out to dinner celebrating our wedding anniversary when suddenly she said to me, you are going to become a Christian. A Christian? Me? I, what could be weirder? I'm a Wiccan priest, witch God, right? After the dream, it began to make sense. Suddenly I started meeting Christians everywhere. This is what I love about God's love. It's not static, it's not inert. They were coming out of the woodwork. Strangers emailing me out of the blue. Priests coming to me for help with their writing. I found myself having conversation with friends I never knew were Christians who suddenly seemed to want to talk about it. An African man contacted me on Facebook to tell me he had a dream in which God had told him to convert me. If you want to know God, he told me, you need to read the book he wrote. You know it already. It's called nature. It's called the Bible. And then he continued. It kept happening for months. Christ to the left of me. I love this. Christ to the right. It was unnerving. I turned away again and again, but every time I looked back, he was still there. I began to feel I was being hunted. I wanted to stop, at least I thought I did. I had no interest in Christianity. I was a witch, a Zen witch, in fact, which I thought sound pretty, he cusses, edgy. But I knew who was after me and I knew it wasn't over. One evening I was sitting in the kitchen of the house in which our coven had a temple. We were about to go in and conduct an important ritual. As we got up to leave, I felt violently ill. I was dizzy, I was sick, I was lightheaded. Everyone noticed and fussed over me as I sat down, my face pale. I had an overpowering feeling that I should not go into the temple. I felt I was being physically prevented from doing it. Someone had staged an intervention and his name was Jesus and he became a Christian. So love, love is the background of our passage that we read here today. I'm going to get to that here really quick. But the background of Genesis passage is the story of creation. And as you read through chapter one through two, uh, you, you, you begin to see the beautiful diversity of creation. You begin to see as you read through it, the lyrical beauty of his passages. And what's so striking to me as you read through Genesis one through two is the loving attention of the creator over the creatures. You have Adam and Eve, and God just takes care of them. Adam and woman, and, 
and how God takes care and partners actually with Adam in naming all of the animals. As you read through Genesis 1 and 2, you can't help but think that creation is drenched in the generous overflow of God's love. Creation, in other words, is not a self-determining, mechanized reality that has no meaning and no hope. The story of creation is basically an act of self-giving love. In other words, God has created space for something other than himself in order for him to fill that space with his extravagant love. This is altogether different than the Enuma Elish, Babylonian um, origin myths, all the creation stories that we find in the world of antiquity. All of these pagan origin stories always begin with violence. The Bible is different. The Bible and its story in the words of Frank Viola, is all about love. As he puts it, in Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible opens up with a woman and a man. In Revelation 21 and 22, the Bible closes with a woman and a man. The Bible opens up with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. It opens with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. Your Bible, in his words, is essentially a love story. All your longings and all your desires, basically, can be traced back to this story of love. In other words, you are essentially you, you, whether you're a Christian or not, you essentially, because you are a creature and you belong to planet earth, unless you're an alien or automaton, which I highly doubt that to be a reality. Okay. But if you're human and you're sucking oxygen here today, you belong to this grand, incredible love story. And this love story is of God loving you all the way to the very end. We find that in John chapter 13. Please read that today. We find in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15, this incredible farewell, what scholars call the farewell um, address from Jesus. It begins in John 13 and goes all the way to John chapter 17. It's all about how God has tabernacled among his people in Jesus. And it's Jesus who loves his disciples to the very end. So this love story is all about how God will love you all the the way through everything to the very end. He will love you through your pain. He will love you through your unimaginable suffering and your sin. He will love you through the absurdity of life. How many of you think life sometimes is just so stinking absurd, right? He will love you. He will love you through your abandonment from a father or a mother. He will love you through your self-loathing. He will love you through your contempt. And most importantly, he will love you through your shame. That is why in the words of one scholar, even though we live in a cynical world, most people love to celebrate a wedding. It appears, in other words, to be, in his words, raising a flag of hope in the midst of a world of broken dreams. Weddings are not just about the bride and groom. Weddings are all about us as well. In other words, weddings say something about our need for relationship. And there are a thousand different ways that I could define love here today. And they all bore me to death, right? Many, we've, you've heard them all, I'm sure. We've all had the love talk said to us many times in church. I just wanted to find love this way because it's the most non-boring way that I could think of. Love is all about relationship. In other words, and I've, I've, I've defined this before, it's being drawn out of yourself towards someone else. It's about discovering that you and I are not fully alive 
fully human, without being pulled out of ourselves into something bigger. That's my long definition of love. It's being drawn out of yourself, the I, rather than being turned into yourself, towards someone bigger than yourself. Can I get an amen? Love, in other words, is all about relationships. Love is community. Isn't it funny? I don't know if you've seen some of the shows. I don't know what they're named, but the survivalist shows that you have, is it like on National Geographic and Discovery? It's Alone, I think one's called, and there's other shows that my, my kids and I love to watch every now and then. You have these trained survivalists. I mean, they've, they've lived in the woods all their life. Half of them are not all there, okay? And they go, and it, but, but I love it. I love to see crazy on TV, you know? And what... What's so fascinating for me, and it just, it's almost like a sociology experiment, is that you have these men and women who are, have been trained their entire life to sleep in the woods and to hunt with nothing but their bare hands, right? Or to figure out how to come up with something to hunt and to survive as long as they can. Inevitably, what you see is in their self-talk, they're talking about home. They always get to a point where they're talking about their family, their children, their loved ones, their friends, even the survivalist, the one that's trained to be alone, cannot be alone for a long time. Why is that? Because you and I are made for love. But here's the thing, and here's the problem that I mentioned a couple of minutes prior that our culture has a problem with. Our culture puzzles over love. We're haunted by it. Like remember that song, in the, and Shane used to sing it all the time when, when we were in high school. What is love, right? <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me, right? Don't hurt me. Come on. I'm embarrassed now. No more. One more time. What is love? <laughs> Thank you, okay? Good job, guys. Our, that is, and I, 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 I do, I, I philosophize everything, but man, that song is all about brokenness, right? And it's fun. I love the song. It's, it's, it's a catchy tune, whatever. We sang it along. Shane sung it all the time, right? Um, <laughs> uh, he, he and I are going to have a talk after this. I know it. Um, but the reason we're haunted over this, over love, and we puzzle over it, and we come up with songs like that, is because Western modernism has made a pact with the devil. Hear me out. So we're like, oh my God, where are we going here? Just follow me. Just like the Faustian legend that I've mentioned so many times before, the devil promised unlimited power, prestige, fame, and fortune to Faust with one condition. And that condition was this Faustian character could not love. Actually, he would not be able to love. This is where we find ourselves today in our culture. We have fallen in love with ourselves. We have fallen in love with our projects. We have fallen in love with power. We have fallen in love with everything other than God. And we wonder why we have renounced love as impossible, as a romantic ideal, 
as something that we can never attain. It's not solid. It's not rooted in the soil of our life. It's some abstract thing that always eludes us. The reason why we believe that is because we have benched the love of God. The love of God is no longer our priority. Our love for power, our love for finding our voice, our love for finding ourselves, our love for finding whatever we want and our prestige, which we call the ego drama, trumps the love of God we find in Scripture. Have I offended everybody here today? We are un able or incapable of love in our marriages, in our families, generally speaking, simply because we have taken love and we've made it irrelevant. We've put it on the side because the most important thing is being true to ourselves, or having fame or prestige or power. I'm speaking the truth. So community and relationship and kids, those are kind of important, but what's really important is the project we call myself. Insofar as my relationships cater to me, I'll keep them. I'm sorry, this is how the world thinks about love. And so our world is broken and puzzled over it. So now we come to finally verse one through four, and I'm just gonna maybe read chunks of this. Just go with me. Verses one through four, it's fascinating. Adam and Eve are doing theology without God. So fascinating. They're not talking to God or with God. They're just simply talking about God. That's a bad way to do theology. Bad way to do theology. So the serpent comes, the serpent figure comes to Adam and Eve and uh, Adam and Eve, both of them choose wisdom. We've talked about this on their own terms over it against God's terms. We come to verse seven and we see the tragic consequences of, of their rebellion against God, defining reality on their own terms. They want, they want to be autonomous. They want to be like God. They want to be in charge. They want to be in control, right? And so we come to verse seven and after they eat of the fruit, verse seven tells us the eyes, both of their eyes were open and then what did they do? They took fig leaves, sewed them together, and made themselves loincloths. So what do you think is happening here? What would you call that? Give me, talk to me, talk to me. Exactly. It's shame. Their eyes were open. It, okay, so let's get rid of the weird idea. They knew they were naked before. We spiritualize this text. They're like, no, nah, they didn't know they were naked. Like they were in the glory of God and now they, they know they're naked. No, 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 no. They were smart. They weren't Neanderthals. They weren't ding-dongs. They knew they were naked and they loved it. They choose their own wisdom on their own terms and the consequences is that their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked and they had to cover themselves. Covering themselves is not, oh, they, they, we need to be modest. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that their eyes are now open to the reality of living a life apart from God and his love. So they cover themselves because now they feel the frozenness or the chilling effect of the fragility of life. That's what you feel inevitably when you are not in the divine presence. 
man. And they feel shame. Shame, what is shame? Shame is contempt for oneself. Shame is actually the opposite of love. Shame and fear are cousins. They work together, They're, they overlap, they intertwine. What's interesting about shame is that our country right now on a national level is experiencing shame in ways we can't even imagine. As Arthur Brooks points out, he calls it the deaths of despair. Actually, many other sociologists call it the deaths of despair. We have a particular demographic group of people who are taking their lives because they feel or they perceive themselves to be on the wrong side of history or on the wrong side of economic and social and political progress. So this cultural national despair is, is not created by, and I'm not trying to pick on any politicians, by an income gap. I'm not, again, trying to score political points here. I don't care about what such and such political person says. I really do care about what Jesus says, okay? And I'll filter every politician's words through what Jesus says. I have so much more to say about politics, but I'm gonna be quiet. Chris, okay? But let me just say this. The issue today is not an income economic gap. Everyone is now talking about a gap of dignity. And what does that mean? More and more people are having a sense that they have no value and they don't matter and they don't contribute anymore. This is the dignity gap. The problem is, is that just a, that's just a superficial analysis of of the human heart, I'll say it that way, or of human life. Shame is much more than an economic, political, social reality, right? And being on the wrong side of such and such. Shame is a deep spiritual problem that runs through every human heart. Can I get an amen? And we find out why in verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why? Shame. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I have heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Okay, there's just so much in here, right? This is a theological critique on anxiety and just so much more, but I can't talk about it. I was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because I was naked and I hid myself. So the initial fear here is cosmetic. It's body. My, I, I'm ashamed because of the fragility of, of, of life that I now feel, but I am naked because I'm apart from you. And what is he focusing on? Adam is focusing on himself. What does he say? I heard. I was afraid. I was naked. I hid myself. What is shame? Rooted in, I. We just become so obsessed through the power of sin, right? In our lives or the power of culture or, or whatever. I mean, there are a thousand different ways in which we feel shame. But because of the spiritual dynamics of being a part of God, we feel this deeply in our life. And this is why so many of us struggle over our bodies, obsessing over ourselves, the reason why many of us feel the way we feel is because of the results of shame. Some of us, we feel like we're too big. Some of us, we think we're, like too, we're too skinny. Some of us think that we're too tall. I wish I was a baller. I wish I was taller, right? <laughs> we struggle, right? Some of you don't even like how you look. 
Some of you don't like your hair. Some of you don't like your skin. Some of you don't like how you look in that, that outfit, right? We're ashamed of ourselves. Some of that is just natural stuff. Some of that is just feeling you're on the wrong side of whatever, but I'm gonna trace it all the way back to ultimately all shame has its roots in this deep spiritual problem. It's a life apart from the love of God. And this is why we compare ourselves endlessly, right? Not simply, we, we don't compare ourselves endlessly, not simply to feel better or to feel worse about ourselves, but because we know that we have lost something and that we're made for something more. We've lost something and we're made for something more. In other words, we're all like the emperor without his clothes. I don't know if you know the story, but it's a crazy story, right? The emperor is told by some scandalous people that they would create clothes that only the wise could see. They don't make any clothes. He comes out naked and everyone sees his own nakedness and exposes his own rebellion and, and pride and arrogance. The point is we're all like that apart from the love of God. We are unclothed outside of the love of God. And it's our desire to be clothed once again. And this is why they try in several verses. And I'm not going to read it. They try to clothe themselves. They sow fig leaves and they, they take loincloth. They try to cover themselves. Again, this is not just about modesty. This is about trying to cover their sense of shame and contempt for themselves. That's what you feel when you're not living in the middle of God's love. <laughs> I don't know why I laughed there, but that just go with me. When you're not living in the middle of God's love, you're going to feel the effects of shame and shame. Verse 20, though, we come to this passage. You guys still with me? And it says, excuse me, this verse says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Verse 21, and the Lord God, everyone say the Lord God. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So we have this shame event and now human history struggles with the effects of shame and contempt and all the ways in which we struggle over ourselves, our body image, our just things that we've done in the past and decisions that we've made. I mean, I could go on and on and on. There are a thousand different ways that now demonic forces will try to bring to us, to bring us into contempt, to bring us into shame, to take us or to pull us out of the love of God. But verse 20 is a, just a little glimpse of hope. I love this, but it's a prophetic scene. I'm going to call it narrative typology. Don't even worry about that word. Okay. <laughs> narrative typology simply is, this is an event that anticipates something's going to happen in the future. That here's a glimpse, a sign, a small sign that God's going to do something bigger down the road. And what does God do? God, in an act of self-giving, generous love, takes garments of skin, right, and clothes Adam and Eve. What does this point to? We all know. First, it points to the incarnation of Jesus. And I've been talking about this for the last a uh, few weeks, about a month now. Uh, my dad and I were talking about this yesterday about just the, how trying to get our mind around the incarnation. That John chapter one tells us that Jesus is the logos, right? He is, he's the word made what? Flesh. And he tabernacled 
among us. This is a love story. It's God becoming flesh. And I've defined that word to you before. Sarks. What is sarks? Sarks is a body vulnerable to corruption, inertia, and death. God, the Lagos. Like if you, if you go to about the third century, they were dealing with Trinitarian formulations based on what they saw in the Bible. We're talking now about the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, this Trinitarian community, the second person of the Trinity decides together. And they decide this before time began that Jesus, the Logos would become Sarks for you and I think about the indignity of that. Not only would Jesus become Sarks and flesh, he would become flesh for eternity. Some of you think that Jesus is a spiritual being in a disembodied incorporeal place we call heaven right now. That's not the case. Jesus is fully human bodily in a dimension we call heaven. And that is where Jesus rules all of creation. Many of us think that's a category mistake. Jesus did not give up his human body. He's still bodily running the universe. Fully human, fully God. Are you hearing me? Think about the indignity of that though. God became flesh, us? to save us for the rest of eternity? And then you go to the, the gospels, the synoptic, and then we can just broadly branch out from there, the canonical gospels, and then you can just go to the Pauline epistles. And what you find is that Jesus goes to his death, literally is unclothed on a tree for us so that you and I might be clothed again. Jesus literally is unclothed, becomes naked, absolutely vulnerable on a tree. I can't think of anything more, more vulnerable and more loving than that. That Jesus, who is not responsible for the destruction, the spoiling of human creation, you and I are. However, he takes our sin and our shame and the ways in which we treat ourselves with contempt and he goes on the cross exposes himself to death and the cruelest way to die so that you and I might have life and blessing and forgiveness and freedom from all shame. Shame from every decision that you've made in the past that was a bad decision. Freedom from all the ways in which you have gone against the good purposes of God in your life. Jesus went to the cross for us as an act of self-giving love. You see today, I'm making this, I'm taking this full circle now. Today, your father in heaven is hunting you down. This love is not static. It's not inert. This love hunts us down. This love comes after us. This love came after us to such a great extent that this love went to the cross for us. You see, the only thing that could defeat shame in your life, please hear me, is not cosmetics. I'm not against cosmetics. If you want to do the cosmetic thing, that's great. Like if there's a surgery to make me taller in the next 10 years that doesn't fully damage my body, I'm going to do it, people, okay? <laughs> so I'm not against cosmetics at all. 
our culture's strategy, however, to dealing with a, the spiritual problem of, of, of shame is to treat it cosmetically or therapeutically. And in the short term, it helps. But the long run, it's like getting a new car, right? And you, into the new car smell, you get in the car and you love it for about two weeks and then you're over it. Right? That, that is the ways in which our strategies have an effect on our shame. They might, for a short term, for, help us to forget, help us to assuage, help us to, to remove that sense of shame in our life. But it's only love that can remove and cast out shame in you. In fact, 1 John says this, it's very clear, that perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. And when you begin to realize this is love, not that I first loved him, but that he first loved me, and you respond to that, that is when the shame that has gripped your mind and paralyzed you is cast out. So I, I, I know it. I'm not stupid. And I, I know what's going to happen here. I'm going to pray for shame and only a third of you are going to raise your hand. But I'm not a dumb guy. I've been in ministry for 25 years and I just know all of you struggle with it on some level. Not that I'm going to make anyone raise their hand against their will. I'm not going to coerce you to do anything you don't want to do. But I'm just trying to make the point we all struggle with with this. But finally, back to verse 20 in this prophetic, prophetic scene where God clothes uh, Adam and Eve as a prophetic sign of what he would do on the cross for all of us. What's interesting is Adam and many rabbinic teachers really thoroughly confused about this because they thought, well, maybe this is out of chronological order that this part should be found in chapter two. And some rabbis tried to, early rabbis tried to take this verse 20 and put it in chapter two, but it doesn't work that way. Adam names his wife a proper name. Up until chapter three, Eve is only known as woman. As an act of grace, and I think in a partnership with God, Adam names his wife a proper name. Eve is now no longer a noun. Are you hearing me? Or just woman. Name, let's say it this way, nouns, if you like grammar, are things, right? Person, place, and things. N nouns are abstractions. Nouns, in other words, are replaceable. I love what one author says. If you lose your backpack, you can get another one because it's a thing. It's a noun, right? But now something's happened. And it's connected to the redemptive work of, of the creator, which is an advanced sign of the redemptive work of Jesus. Guess what happens? Eve is given a personal name and she is now different. Having a personal name basically refers to an individual in their own uniqueness. This is an act of love. As one scholar says, we are not gene producing machines, but individuals, each of us, unique, irreplaceable, here because God wants us to be here. And I could see a lot of you, and a lot of you, I know your names, I could just point out your name. You have a name. You have a name. How do I know that I'm loved? You have a name. 
You have a name. And Psalm 139 says, it wasn't just your mom and your dad that named you. It's your father in heaven who knew you in your mother's womb as, you're, as you were being knit together, your heart, your lungs, your personality, your DNA, your, ge- your genetic makeup in the womb was, was coming together. That's where God saw you and knew you and he named you. Come on, somebody. You have a name and because you have a name, God wants you to be here. I can't wait for second service because they're going to really shout me down then. God wants you to be here. Well, I'm not tall enough. God wants you to be here. I'm not, I'm not smart enough. God wants you to be here. I don't like how I look. God wants you to be here. And not only that God wants you to be here, God loves you with an everlasting love. And when you know this love, you, when you really know it, when it gets inside your bones and you sense how much God loves you, right, you're going to stop thinking about, oh man, I just don't like that little idiosyncrasy of mine. Or I just don't like this particular way that I do this or do that. Right? All the ways in which we shame ourselves or allow demonic powers to shame us, we're set free when we truly find ourselves in the middle of God's love. In fact, one of my favorite stories, I've shared this many times before as I close here, is Moses in Exodus chapter four, he's complaining about his speaking disability. God's calling him to speak to Pharaoh. And he's, I mean, think of Moses. He has a speaking disability. He didn't like English growing up or wasn't going to be English, it would be whatever, Hebrew, Egyptian, whatever. Um, and he's confused. He's befuddled by why God would call him back to Pharaoh and to lead them out. And then God finally responds. I think God was a little bit frustrated in love. And, he's, and he's, he says this to Moses. I love the first phrase. I think about this often. God says to Moses as a response to his complaint, Moses, who gave a mouth to man? Who gave a mouth to man? First, as I close, God is fully, the point here, able to overcome all of Moses' deficiencies in a redemptive way. Do you believe that? Some of you are so preoccupied with your deficiencies that you just automatically assume that you're disqualified from what God has called you to do. As if deficiencies or sufficiencies meant anything. Even if you felt like you were fully qualified and sufficient, my God, what God has called you to do far exceeds any sort of standard of worthiness or sufficiency on your part. So it's not about sufficiency or deficiency at all, right? What matters is the call of God and his grace for you. So God can overcome all of Moses' deficiencies. But second, here's the thing, please hear me. Some of you need to hear this today. Moses, this is what God is telling Moses. Moses is exactly the way God intended him to be. Not the sin part, okay? You hearing me? Not the complain all the part, time all the part, but 
even the speaking, that's this, and this is so ah, profoundly frustrating. What, what God is telling Moses is, hey, I know that speaking disability, but you're exactly the way I want, want you to be. What? Yeah, yeah, that deficiency in your life, that's exactly who I want you to be. What? Come on, what? Like, guys, I should be six foot five. I should be. I was told at the age of four that I would be six five. If I was six five, I would be changing the world right now. I don't know why, but that's always been the thing that's haunted me. Why am I not six foot five, right? Think about that all the time. God, why am I? I'm not short by any stretch of the imagination, okay? I'm 5'11 and three quarters, okay? I'm going off on some weird tangent here. What I'm trying to tell you is I've struggled with, like my dad's 6'5", and you gotta be a certain height to, you know, like CEOs, we're told they're over six foot, and they're the ones that take charge, right? I'm almost right there, and that was a thing that I struggled early on in my life, and I began to realize that, hey, none of that matters. Because God can overcome all those deficiencies, but here's the thing. God knew he wanted to be inexplicably, because I will have a conversation with him in the new heavens and new earth. He wanted me to be 5'11 and three quarters. And some of you are doubting that. Some of you think I'm 5'11. That's not true. That's a lie from the devil. <laughs> I'm 5'11 and three quarters. Nate Argon would agree with me, all right? The point that I'm trying to make is that you are exactly who God wants you to be. Your voice, your brain, your personality, the color of your skin. Come on, somebody. I could go on and on and on. All the idiosyncrasies, you are exactly who God has called you and designed you to be. Well, Chris, is this like some self-help, narcissistic stuff? No, this is just simply saying, as an act of self-giving love, God has designed you in such a way, he has a grand purpose for your life. And yes, we all have deficiencies, but those do not matter when it comes to the call of God. What matters is his love. So it's 10, 9, 10 20, it just turned to 10, 20. So what do we do? Well, the only thing that can overcome shame, as I said before, is love. Love, self-giving love, capital L love that we find in Jesus is the only thing, it's the only thing that can absorb and exhaust the power of shame. It's the only thing. As I mentioned before, it's not cosmetics, it's not ther therapeutic stuff. Those things are great, but they cannot strip you of your shame and your insecurity and your sense of inadequacy, the only thing that can do that is love. Why? Because love pulls you out of yourself. It draws you out of yourself, out of the I, and into the thou, come on, into the divine presence, into the God who loves you with an everlasting love. Because perfect love casts out all shame. When you know how much God loves you, all of you, you're not going to worry about anything else. And you're going to be able to move in. You're going to have the freedom. Everyone say freedom. You're going to have the freedom to move into God's call. As a church, when we forget about, right, our weaknesses, we, all, we have it as, as a body. There are things we can do better. But if we 
and obviously we need to work on our weaknesses, but as we forget as a community the things that we might not certainly like, but we focus on who God has created us to be as a community, that is when we move into freedom together as a team, as a family, as a people called by God, reflecting the love of God back into our city, back into the Treasure Valley, back into Boise, back into CUNA. If you live in Idaho City, we will pray for you, but back into Idaho City, back into this region. We cannot reach this city. We cannot reach our neighbor, neighbors. We cannot even move into evangelism if we are not confident in God's love for us. So th- th- this is not like a special thought, but I really felt like in prayer this morning, this is what the Holy Spirit put in my heart. This is our response to this message. So what does God want from us? I think it's just one thing. Is one thing. He wants our time. As a response to all this, well, how does time relate to love and shame? Well, here's the thing. Many of us think that time heals. That's false. Time doesn't heal. Time with Jesus does. God wants your time. So as a response to the overflowing, generous love of God, as a response to belonging to this grand love story that we find in creation and we find throughout the narrative arc in the Bible, what, what, what do we do? We get close to Jesus. John chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples, guys, abide in me, abide in my words, abide in my love, and what will happen? You will bear fruit. Fruitfulness, not successfulness. You will be fruitful. Why? Because you have given your time to abide in Jesus. You see, when you're with Jesus, abiding in his love, now I'm getting really practical, every single day. Guys, you gotta do this every single day. In the past, I was like really, I, to be honest, lax on this. But now I think there's a, there's a new level the church has to go to when it comes to giving our time back to God, if we are serious about revival. If, if we just wanna go back to the status quo, if we just want the world to go to hell in a handbasket, then let's just not do anything. But if we are serious about a move of God, come on, as a community, we gotta give our time back to God. And by giving our time back to God, that means we are intentionally every single day engaging in in prayer, engaging in the word, engaging in worship, engaging in intercession. I don't think any longer one hour a week with God is enough if we are serious about a move of God. And I'm fine. I'm fine if you're not serious about a move of God. That's, that's okay. But I'm talking to the people that actually want to partner with the Holy Spirit and do something and make a difference and allow our lives to be lives of, of flow where God flows through us and brings healing to the nations. I want to be a church that brings healing to our city and life to our city. But if we're not abiding in his love, if we're not giving Jesus our time every single day, God, forget about it. Are you hearing me? This isn't, I'm not bringing judgment to anybody. I know we all struggle with time and everything, but I think it's, I think we're at a new season now, church. New season of prioritizing our time around 
Jesus. And here's the thing, when you know you're loved and you're giving your time and your attention to Jesus and you, and you start really believing you're a part of that grand love story, what happens? You, you become less interested in your issues. It just happens. It's amazing how it happens. You become more interested in what God thinks, what he says, what he's doing. Come on, somebody. You get really, you get really bored with your ego drama. It's just like, oh my God, that's just, I don't even care, right? Yes, I might be six months behind in fashion, but I'm, I'm okay about that, right? Like I got seven kids. I don't care, right, anymore. Doesn't matter. I don't care about these little ego dramas anymore. All I care about is what God has called me to be a part of. And the reason is because my heart is so filled with his love. My God, I am loved. I am seen. I am known by the creator of the universe. Woo! You see, uh, uh, man, spouses, if, if you... If you knew this, this would, this would change your marriage. I think many times, and my wife and I have talked about this, we've, we've taken each other and we've put them in a position that they were unable to fulfill. We treated them like, almost like a God, God-like status, right? You gotta fulfill this and this and this and this and me. And early on in our marriage, we realized that yes, we were in love with each other and God brought us together, but ultimately we could never satisfy our, our deepest longing and desires only Jesus could. And when we learned to abide in the presence of Jesus, guess what happened? Our marriage changed. Guys, we used to fight like chickens. Whew. She is a strong-willed woman. And I'm a strong-willed man. And yet it's amazing to see the transformation that has taken place in our life because we chose to give time to Jesus. It's, it's an answering response to the love that God has for us. And when you abide in love, shame and fear and insecurity and inadequacy is thrown out. It's replaced with love and joy and peace and righteousness. And guess what? The overflow of all of that is fruit. The overflow of abiding in Jesus in his love is fruitfulness in your marriage, in your family, your friends, with your coworkers, with strangers, with the relation, your relationship with God's purposes, with just the people you come in contact with every single day, that fruit overflows so that God then gets the glory. If you want fruitfulness in your life, if you want meaning and purpose in your life, learn to abide in the love of the Father. It is not enough for you today, as I close, to listen to a message about the love of God. Go home and do your thing. Like, we're gonna go home, we're gonna watch the Bengals win, okay? And we're gonna eat nacho cheese. Sorry, we're gonna eat it. We're gonna eat, we love nacho cheese. And barbecue wings. Can I get an amen to that? But it's not enough just to go home and watch that and forget about this message. Guys, if we're serious about partnering with the Holy Spirit, we got to be serious about spending time with Jesus. Knowing his love, being loved, knowing that we're seen. When that happens, you now have the freedom to give your life away.
Amen. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Jesus, Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you love us with a deep, overflowing, generous kind of love. I thank you that it's solid, it's real, it's tangible, it's it's not just an idea, it's not just an abstraction. My God, it's, it's present even here today. And I'm asking that every person in this room would really know in their bones that this would be a new season of knowing, of knowing, of knowing. We call this epistemology of love. That They would really, 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 really know your love. They would really know and really believe that they're seen and that they're exactly who you intended them to be. Obviously not the sin part. I think you take care of the sin on the cross and you take care of the the shame. But Lord, even in our deficiencies, I thank you, Father, that you knew us in our mother's womb. And I thank you as we experience your love that you would set us free from things that have brought shame in our lives. Things that continue to haunt us, maybe decisions that we've made in the past. Some of, some of you here today, you find yourself lapsing into self-loathing because of decisions that have happened in the past and it really it paralyzes you or keeps you from the good purposes that God has for you. Maybe you doubt because of that, that God could really love you. Lord, I pray any, anyone like that in this room, you would set them free today. Lord, I think anyone that's overwhelmed by a sense of, man, I just don't like myself. I don't like my body. I just don't like, I don't like me. I don't like me. I don't like me. The shaming, which doesn't come from you. If there's anyone like that in this room, I just ask by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would cut that off in Jesus' name. I thank you that Jesus, you set us free. Lord, I just pray right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would pour out your love that casts out all shaming I just see it. I just see, I, I just see it. A new, a new way of thinking is taking over the minds of so many people here today. We're going to see ourselves in light of how you see us. Lord, I thank you. The most important thing is not how we think about you. It's about how you think about us. And I thank you that we will start thinking thoughts in light of how you think about us today. Fill us. Everyone say, fill us. Fill us with your overflowing, generous love. Cast out all fear, cast out anxiety, cast out the insecurities, cast out those things that paralyze us, those chains that keep us shackled, keep us from doing and partnering the good purposes of God in our city and our world. Jesus, I thank you. You're doing a brand new work here. Let's just wait. I know our worship team, they're going to sing a song. Keep your eyes closed. Just wait in, in the presence of Jesus. God's here. How many of you sense the presence of God right now? Just wait. Holy Spirit, just come and do your work. Take this word and work it into our mind, into our hearts. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Oh, there's no one like you. Oh, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus, we love you, we love you, we love you, we love you. Thank you, Father. Lord, as we learn to abide in your presence, I thank you that marriages are going to be healed. There's some marriages here today that are broken. 
I'm not gonna go long on this, but I'm just gonna say this. I declare that you're healing marriages today. Broken marriages. Some of you, you're just not getting along. There's, there's a lot of just conflict in your marriage. I pray healing over those marriages in Jesus' name. Healing over minds, healing over hearts. Pray for families, families that are broken, maybe kids that have, they're no longer in the church, maybe doing their own thing. But I thank you, families coming back together, healing and restoring. I just see that, you healing and restoring families today in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Everyone, take your hand. I'm, I'm gonna close and we're gonna sing a song. Take your hand, put it on your heart. I thank you now that you're drawing us by the power of the Holy Spirit, drawing us out of ourselves. We know we can't do this outside of grace. We can only do this by your power. I thank you that you would pull us out of our shame today. Pull us out of our sense of inadequacies that paralyze us. And then bring us into that wonderful partnership of your love. And I thank you as you transform us and set us free. Our desire is for you to flow through us so that we can bring your love to people in this world in Jesus' name. We love you. We love you. We love you. Come on, at church, just, just tell Jesus how much you love him. We love you. Oh, we declare there's no one like you. Come on, just tell him, tell him, tell him, tell him, tell him, tell him. We love you, we love you, we love you. Come on, we're gonna praise Jesus right now. Lord, we just praise your holy name. We love you that you went on that tree and became unclothed so that we could be clothed. Lord, we love you, 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 we love you. In Jesus' mighty name. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.